Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone, it's Pacific. And welcome to the second episode of Out of Place Season 2. If you haven't listened to the first episode of Season 2, or you haven't heard Season 1 yet, uh, I highly encourage you to go back and start there, as this show does have a linear story told every week. Second, we now have a premium option on Apple Podcasts, where you can get early and ad-free access to all Midnight Disease shows for just $7.50 a month. That means SCP Archive's bonus episodes, early access to Out of Place, and ad-free, uninterrupted Margaret's Garden episodes and much, much more, coming very, very soon. You can try 7 Days Free by finding any of our shows on Apple Podcasts and starting a trial today. But without further ado, this week's episode. It took a long time for this report to be filed. I hope the board don't mind. The idea of coming to the attention of the project board for the wrong reasons is one I don't like to entertain. It's late because of the delay in the debriefing process for the squad. After going through the data, I can't begrudge them a few more days to decompress. When I was brought into the extant team, I assumed I'd be crunching numbers. Investigating the ways the world could end sounded like it would be about climate change calculations and asteroid trajectories. The sort of mathematics that juggles billions of lives between every decimal point. But it's a lot fuzzier than that. It's all guesswork and maybes. I'm starting to understand why Director Beckman wanted someone to try to make sense of the mission data and the debriefings. There aren't any paradigms for this kind of thing. It's outside the context of our world's experience. The team was sent through the dimensional breach to a timeline that lacked any human activity recognisable from orbit. The probes didn't find any signs of radioactivity or seismic or impact events, so it wasn't the usual world-ending suspects. 
The marks of humanity were definitely on the planet, though. The major cities were there, though they were unlit. The Aral Sea had shrunk, one of the telltales that human civilization was present until at least the start of the 21st century. It was a perfect candidate for a recon team. Their point of arrival in the new timeline was a short distance west of New York City. They have to start looking somewhere, and New York is as good a place as any. It's a heavily populated city in a very constrained area, meaning a high density of potential intelligence if the team enters the city itself. And the team members being drawn from the US Army are more likely to notice cultural anomalies if they're from their own culture. The capsule put them down in the town of Rutherford, New Jersey, close enough to New York City. The capsule exited the breach about 200 feet up. It was a bumpy landing. The area was residential and had been abandoned for a long time. Though the team's immediate area recon showed no signs of significant destruction, there were indications of disturbance and rapid abandonment. Cars were left at intersections and haphazardly in the road. Stores were looted and windows broken. The team also found signs of small arms fire. They quickly confirmed their location from street signs. Private Sandich enthused that they were very close to the MetLife Stadium, which he knew from visits prior to joining the army. The team needed to pass close by it to reach the city, but Sergeant Brand refused to detour just to see if the Giants and the Jets existed in this world. The team was struck by a foul odour emanating from their east. Brandt and Private Quintero, who had extensive combat zone experience, identified it as decaying bodies. They took up a defensive position in a residence while Warrant Officer Poulter sent a camera-equipped drone to sweep the forward area. He noted several makeshift defences around the stadium, including trucks and city buses moved into position as barriers in front of the main entrances and watchtowers providing views across the surrounding parking lots and road approaches. However, there were still no people visible. He performed a flyover of the stadium itself, but the stadium, which lacks a roof, had a makeshift canopy of tarpaulins and netting over its entire span, and Poulter could not pilot a drone through this covering. The nearby racetrack showed signs of having been used as a staging post for vehicles, with refueling and support vehicles of the US Army and National Guard being parked abandoned, along with two APCs that had been left partway through maintenance. Brand opted to recon the stadium. The odour worsened as the team negotiated the barricades and reached one of the entrances. Private Sandich donned his gas mask to help with the smell. He was admonished by Sergeant Brand to remove it as the team moved through the concourse and found an entrance to the arena floor. The team halted when they saw what was inside the MetLife Stadium. It was a mass of corpses. Impossible to number, but in the thousands. Some were laid out in rows. Most were in an enormous pile at the stadium's northern corner. They were in an advanced state of decay, with some of those in the rows being almost skeletonized. Where clothes could be distinguished, they wore a mix of civilian and military fatigues. The top of the mound was almost level with the topmost seats of the lower tier. The process of putrefaction had mired most of the arena floor with decaying material and fluids. Some construction equipment was present, but no effort seemed to have been made to bury the corpses or excavate a mass grave for them. 
A soldier can become experienced in death, even desensitized to it, but some sites it's just impossible to get used to. At that scale, individual deaths ceased to have meaning. Life and death are defining features of our existence and no longer relevant. Like an astronomical distance or an eon's long length of time, the scale of that death defied proper comprehension. The fire team could not comprehend it, even though it was right in front of them. Sergeant Brand ordered Poulter to document the scene photographically and then for the team to fall back and rest and regroup before continuing on towards New York. Private Quintero saw movement approaching, and the team took up defensive postures among the closest banks of seats. At this point, parts of the team's voice recordings are redacted. I'm not sure what the project doesn't want me to hear or who they think I'm going to tell, but... The project does not make a virtue of transparency in its decision-making. I just have recordings with muted sections and partial transcripts of the missing sound. The same is true of the team's debriefings and I suspect for Poulter's photographs too. From what I can tell, they saw a figure that resembled a human but which they estimated to be at least three meters in height. Its limbs, fingers, and facial features were proportionally elongated, in a similar way to the symptoms of some connective tissue disorders, though much more pronounced. It wore a piecemeal of military uniform pieces and webbing with a skirt of ballistic fibre panels, all festooned with dozens of sets of dog tags. This description is from the partial transcripts I was given of the team's debriefings. If Poulter got a photograph of this figure... None have been passed on to me. Brandt was warning the team to stay in cover when Private Quintero began walking towards the figure. He was followed by Poulter and then by Brandt. Sandwich remained in position and called for the team to come back, but they kept walking towards the figure, which spread its arms and smiled, as if welcoming them. What it said is disputed. According to Sandage, it said, Come join us. Brand recalls it saying, Welcome home. Poulter does not recall exact words, but believes the figure was offering shelter and safety to the team. Quintero was unable to remember anything that was said. Sandage called again for the team to return to his position, but says they either ignored him or could not hear. None of them remember hearing Sandage shouting at all. The extant team does not have set rules of engagement. It's up to the team leader to dictate rules of engagement as the situation changes. This puts a lot of pressure on the team leader, but it is necessary given that no set of rules can be dictated that can possibly encompass all the circumstances the team might encounter in different timelines. Generally, the team is instructed to not open fire unless necessary, but to treat the team's safety as a higher priority than the safety of the timeline's native inhabitants. In this instance, the team leader might be considered unable to act. Sandwich was on his own. He might have acted through panic, but in retrospect, it was also probably right. Sandage opened fire. He wasn't chosen for the team by accident. He is an outstanding marksman, even under pressure. He hit the figure's central mass with two three-round bursts, and it went down. A few moments later, the rest of the team recovered their senses and, still dazed, 
fell back from the arena. They followed Brandt's original plan of reaching a defensible location and recuperating before moving on with their objective. They rested and ate in a nearby residence while posting a guard. Poulter surveyed more of the surrounding area by drone and saw no other evidence of survivors, but noted smoke rising from a location on the near shore of the Hudson River. The team moved on towards the smoke in almost complete silence. They saw further evidence of civil disturbances, evacuation and abandonments. In places were checkpoints and mustering locations with signage from various federal agencies, suggesting a concerted effort to move the population out of the New York, New Jersey area. It was impossible to determine where they were being moved to or how successful the effort was. Approaching the location of the smoke, they saw several apartment complexes had been connected with above-ground walkways and fortified with barricades of vehicles and construction materials. The team were hailed by people on the fortifications. They were a small band of survivors who, unlike the one at the stadium, appeared conventionally human. Most scenarios about the end of the world leave room for small groups to live on through the destroying event. The whole species doesn't have to go extinct at once, it just has to dip below a viable population, rendering humankind vulnerable to being wiped out by a single event like a disease or a disaster. It has to be above a certain number to avoid the genetic dangers of inbreeding. Most of the time, the destroying event separates these groups and prevents them from gathering into a larger population that might become viable. That was the kind of group the team encountered. There were nine of them of various ages, wearing scavenged military equipment and carrying a mix of looted civilian and military weapons. They treated the team with suspicion, but Sergeant Brandt was able to successfully claim they were a group of U.S. Army soldiers who had been holed up in a bunker-up state and recently emerged to scavenge for food and ammunition. The team shared some of the rations they brought with them and ate with the survivor group. Brandt claimed the soldiers were trying to compile a record of recollections from the upheaval, and one of the group, named Esterman, described the events leading to human extermination as he understood them. It started out as celebrities. That's how I think it did, anyway. I worked for the city. I didn't know anything about it back then. My daughter was into all that. There would be these uh, people everyone loved. Not, you know, pretty or pop singers or stuff like that usually made people famous. They'd have these people who would follow them around, go state to state just to be around them. To me, it was just dumb. They looked normal. I mean, they were always tall and that sort of stretched looking, even at the start. But other than that, they looked like regular people. But everyone said the photographs or the TV didn't show it. You had to see one in person to get it. And once you had, you'd never forget it. They started getting profiled, you know, uh, the big new thing, the new breed of celebrity. People knew their names. And then it changed. It wasn't a, wasn't a single big news story, a scandal. It was more that uh, everyone seemed to realize at once that we all knew someone we'd lost to them. A cousin or a neighbor, a friend, who'd gone off to follow one of these people. Me. Uh, it was my daughter. There was one of them called uh, Kristen Park, a Korean girl. I thought she was some kind of fashion expert. One of those uh, influencers, they call them. 
She did a show at MSG. It wasn't a concert, like I assumed, more a kind of audience with her. He just sat in a big room and uh, looked at her, experienced her. Sometimes I wish I'd gone with Allison to see this park girl. I would have followed her too, and I wouldn't have lost my daughter. But she didn't want a grumpy old pa with her while she hung out with this new cool celebrity, so I stayed home. I never saw Allison again. I saw Kristen Park, though, plenty of times, all over the news, filling stadiums, surrounded by hundreds of people everywhere she went, people camping outside the hotel she was staying at. Allison called me most days and said she was doing fine, so I didn't worry at first. It was her money and her friends and a couple of their parents were with her. I thought, give her a break, let her have a holiday. But she stopped calling, and she never came back. And 120,000 people stood in the Rose Bowl to see Kristen Park. Everyone realized they'd lost someone to these new breed. They were cults. They took people and never let them go. Cults of personality. And a hell of a lot bigger than any of the Kool-Aid type. They were all over the world by now. Some countries tried to stop them right away, but it never worked. You couldn't imprison them or even kill them, because once someone got close enough, they were under the spell. The North Koreans said they'd whacked one with a drone, but no one believed them. Another one got taken out by a sniper in Russia, but after that, none of them ever let themselves get into a situation where anyone could get at them without being real close. No matter how often the government or parents' groups tried to investigate them, everyone they sent just joined in the party. Then someone had the idea to put a bunch of sensors up whenever one of them was supposed to be next. Not Kristen Park, some other guy. They found something. It was pheromones. Don't know any of the science stuff myself. Some chemical that affects the mind. And these people were pumping them out like it was AC. It'd make you do anything for them. The government sent National Guard with gas masks and those hazard suits to arrest a bunch. And we found out people would die for them. Kill for them, too. That's how it really started. The guns came out. The new breed armed everyone who followed them. First it was, mess with our leader and you're dead. Then it was, follow our leader or die. And if you breathed the air near any of them, you were theirs, too. After a few minutes, you'd be theirs no matter what. No matter how far away you were. It was hardwired into your brain. This was going on everywhere, too. The worst was in Russia at first, where one of them had been shot. It was the tensest there, and it broke out into war there first. It spread in every direction. Then in the U.S., where just about everyone could get their hands on a gun. The feds tried to evacuate people from cities and get them into camps where they could be made safe. But the other side got into all of them, one way or another. All you needed was one of those skinny bastards to get through the fence, and the whole place was gone. That's the time I cut loose from all that and just tried to make it on my own. We were safer in ones and twos. We scrounged, slept wherever we could put up a shelter, kept moving. There was no way to live, but it was that or die. Plenty chose die. Not sure why I didn't. But then there was no way Allison was coming back. Or probably even alive. She was 17 that year. Just a child. 
Then these cults were having shootouts with the army. There were battlefields with half a million, two million dead. Even if she's still breathing, she's not Allison anymore. While all this is happening, they have scientists holed up in bunkers trying to find a solution. They were looking for a chemical which would reverse the pheromones' effects, I guess. They traced it back to a few decades before all this started. They found cases of people who had these smaller groups around them, and how they had started finding each other, started breeding together, producing more potent versions, stronger pheromones. They couldn't take any of the new breed alive, so they didn't have the data to work anything out for sure, like whether it was a deliberate plot or if it just kind of happened naturally. They never found a solution, or at least not in time. I haven't seen any other survivors except the ones we got here. Were people who gravitated back towards New York City. Again, I got no idea why. We all gotta go somewhere, I guess. I don't know how many skinnies there are left either. Could be there's only a few. Or maybe they have millions of followers still in some other part of the world. We try scanning with radios every now and again, and transmitting in case anyone can hear. But we can't just shout our location into the sky in case their skinny's listening will come down and turn us all into slaves. Maybe we'll try to have some kids if we stick it out in the long run. But then again, this ain't a world to raise a child in anymore. And what would they do? We're not gonna repopulate the Earth. You can't mate them to each other like cattle unless you want a bunch of mutant grandkids. If we find other survivor groups, maybe it'll be worth it. Otherwise, the next generation will just be a few people watching their parents get old and die. Guess it all means we'll be the last people alive. Unless there's one of those bunker cities, like from the Cold War, waiting for the skinnies to die off so they can come out and start again. I'll be long dead by then, though. We all will. It was clear from speaking to the survivors and from the encounter at the stadium that the area was extremely unsafe. Sergeant Brand made the decision to prioritize the team's safety and return to the capsule. The survivors requested they stay, but Brandt allowed no discussion of the matter, and the team began their return after about two hours with the survivors. They skirted well around the stadium on the way back. Twice, the team believed they had spotted the movement of someone following or observing them, but they encountered no one else before reaching the capsule. They still had time left on their allotted mission duration, but the potential dangers of the area and the amount of information they'd gleaned from Esterman meant Brand deemed the mission complete. The capsule functioned without error and returned to our base timeline with a deviation of 19 minutes and 31 meters from its target, one of the most accurate breaches yet. The team was taken into debriefing, which was quickly combined with a mental decompression process. To my knowledge, none of the counselling sessions were recorded. At least, they haven't been made available to me. I don't think it's an accident the field team is housed on a different site to the one I work in. I doubt the project wants me meeting any of them face to face. I'm starting to understand how information is compartmentalised here. For whatever reason, it's more important that some things be kept away from other parts of the project than that I have everything I need to draw the most accurate possible conclusions. I'm not complaining. I assume there are very good reasons for it. 
I can't think what they might be, but then I just work here. The existence of an evolved form of human is a scenario I didn't expect to see. But that seems to be what happened in this timeline. Maybe it's possible for two subspecies of human to live in harmony, but not when one of them accumulates followers to dispose of however it wants, as armies, harems, and meat shields when the inevitable conflict begins. I can see three ways the new breed could come about. One is a natural mutation, although that seems unlikely. There are infinite timelines, presumably, so it probably happens in one of them, at least. The second is genetic engineering. Someone made this new breed, and they were either deliberately released into the population or escaped control. Another is atavistic evolution. Where the pheromone generation possessed by an unknown ancestor of human beings randomly appears again as a form of mutation. It's still unlikely, but a lot more possible than a completely random change. The exact way it happened isn't really relevant to the conclusions. The end of the world came about because of a division in the species that went far deeper than philosophy, religion, nation or race. In this case, one side of that division was socially dominant, to the degree the other side reacted with instinctive genocidal aggression. Esterman and the rest of the world could have accepted the new breed and joined them, or accepted that their loved ones had flocked to these strange new people and moved on with their lives. But it didn't seem to occur to them to let that happen. The fear and anger created was such that war happened without thinking about whether it should. How do we avoid this happening in another timeline? Assuming we do try to stop it against an enemy with capabilities most of us homo sapiens lack, striking first and hard while we still have the numbers seems the only way. But then we get into some recommendations I cannot in all conscience make. Are we to be tolerant of people different from us unless they're a bit too different, in which case we should kill them on sight? I should be grateful the decision won't be mine. I also find myself thinking about the information the project hasn't let me see. I don't know what they'd want to hide from me, but my guesses are all rather disconcerting. There's one I keep coming back to, that the team brought back more than just photographs and sound recordings with them. Something that might damage my sense of loyalty to the project if I were to learn of it. I'll leave all that well alone. The project has the resources to send people across time and space. I don't want them turned against me. I am also intensely aware that the team almost didn't make it. If Sandish hadn't been wearing a gas mask, they would never have come back. I knew the field team was undertaking a risk when they visited the other timelines, but I never fully appreciated that until now. They don't have to be injured or killed to be lost. They could be dominated by some unanticipated force like the new breed. They could be broken by sites like the MetLife Arena full of corpses. They could fall to any one of an infinity of threats we haven't even thought of yet. No wonder they're being put through the process before they're back in the field. Maybe they've realised all that for the first time too. I'll be fine, of course. I'm safe here in the offices, the project built for extant support staff, and I know I should be grateful for that too. 
But as I look through the data the team brought back from that timeline, even in its redacted state, I find it difficult to give thanks for anything at all. Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Sound design and music was done by Dana Creesman, and our show is produced by Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew was played by Ben Counter, and Easterman was Graham Rowitz. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.